Welcome to the Scholar's Attic, an audio archive of our tour through world history, specifically the modern age, from the French Revolution to current events of 2021. Welcome to the Attic. Today's class was recorded originally on February 23rd, 2021. It is a recording of one of our seniors presenting on existentialism, which is a major worldview at the back of a lot of what we see in today's culture. If you are taking notes from the original PowerPoint on this one, you might want to listen to this before you do the notes or vice versa. It is a very dense lecture with a lot of woolly philosophy wrapped up in it. Although I think Caitlin did an excellent job of explaining with examples and trying to make all of this woolly philosophy as understandable as possible. There are some liner notes to clarify a couple of things that were brought up. And so be sure to check those out especially if you want to know a little bit more about the photograph that I referenced. Although for the church going public, the actual image itself uh, may be considered very offensive. So just be warned before you go and Google it. So with that being said, let's plug in. We didn't start the fire. Now, if you recognize the title, then the song by Billy Joel just started playing in your head. That's right, I named my senior seminar after a song by Billy Joel. If you don't recognize the song, then all you need to know is that one, it's great. Two, it was written by Billy Joel and published in 1989. Now, the whole point of the song was to explain that the mass chaos, depression, hopelessness the world was feeling at the time was not the fault of Billy's generation. There was a massive, figurative, fire burning, and Billy wanted everyone to know it wasn't their fault. Throughout his lifetime, there were several fires burning, and the fire, he claimed, has been burning, however, since the world has been turning. Now, what on earth does this have to do with anything? Well, whether or not you realize it, there is a massive fire burning in our own generation that, contrary to popular belief, we didn't start. This fire that I'm talking about has to do with the beliefs of the age. And does anyone want to guess what it is? And you don't have to give me like the formal philosophical name. Just think of like mottos or phrases that the world uses to tell you how to live your life. I know I'm already asking questions. <laughs> do what makes you happy. Yes, do what makes you happy. Follow your heart, like you do you, those kind of things. So this fire has to do with finding and living out your own truth. Do what you want. You do you. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Now, this figurative philosophical fire actually has a name. Existentialism. And you have no idea how long it took me how to pronounce that word. <laughs> so long. <laughs> so now that we vaguely know what existentialism is, or at least what it means in our modern terms, what is the formal definition of existentialism? Well, the most basic definition, and I mean basic definition is that existentialism is the belief that existence precedes essence. Now, what does that mean? Well, existentialists believe that you are born into the world without an essence. An essence is just a set of properties necessary for a thing to be what it is. An easy way to consider essence is to think of the example of a knife. So 
So a knife can have a metal or a wooden handle, right? That doesn't really matter, but it has to have a blade. That is its essence, its essential property. You can also think of essence as having a meaning or a purpose in life. And as a matter of fact, that's how I'm going to be referring to essence throughout this presentation, as having a meaning in life. So this essence can, however, sorry, existentialists believe that we must create our own meaning in life. And this naturally leads to another existentialist belief. There are no absolutes. Now, absolutes are just moral rules, things that tell us what is right and what is wrong. And this is more than just a matter of opinion. This means that if I witness you pushing someone over and taking their wallet, I can't tell you what you did was wrong. Your right and wrong and my right and wrong are just different. However, the existentialist says, we as man still try to find meaning. And this search is known as the absurd. The absurd is just a term used to describe mankind's search for meaning in a knowingly meaningless world. And it should be noted here that not all existentialists are atheists. As a matter of fact, this is what makes existentialism unique, at least in my opinion, is that you can be an existentialist and an atheist, or an existentialist and a theist. All existential, existentialists deny is any sort of teleology. And teleology is just a really fancy word to describe the belief that a god made the universe with a purpose. So we as Christians believe that God made the universe for the purpose of glorifying himself. Also, he made mankind for the purpose of glorifying himself. However, the existentialist says that even if there is a God, he didn't make the universe or mankind with any purpose. Therefore, since the world or God gives us no meaning or purpose, we are, as Jean-Paul Sartre said, who is a famous existentialist, condemned to be free. Since we are born without a destiny, we must create our own meaning in life and moral code. And we cannot even rely on other people like the government, religious leaders, or our family to give us meaning or morals because they too have no real answers. We must choose ourselves. And this leads to individuals being defined by their actions. <clears throat> but your choice of action, no matter what it is, is the right choice if and only if you made it yourself. So we are, as Francis Schaeffer said, we can either help an old white lady across the street or run her over, we made the right choice. And if you don't fully understand anything that I just said about existentialism, don't worry, we're gonna go over it all again when we talk about who started the fire or the leaders of existentialism. That quote by Francis Schaeffer, that, um, so he was basically saying that if you're, if you believe in existentialism, that whether you help the lady across the street or run her over, yeah, either one is right. the right choice. It's correct. Because yeah. they're, I mean, it's what you want to do. Yeah. As long as you made it, that's the emphasis. If you made that choice by yourself, then it's right. Now, how did we get to this point? Who really started the fire? And unfortunately, for those who wanted a quick answer, we have to go back a few thousand years to the men who bought the matches responsible for lighting several fires. Plato and Aristotle. From the time of these Greeks to around the 18th century, all non-Christian philosophers were optimistic that true meaning or absolutes or essence could be found through reason. And by reason, I mean the concrete observable things like science or math, things you touch and see. And one philosophy that followed along this optimism is essentialism, started by Plato and Aristotle. Now, essentialism is basically the opposite of existentialism in that it is the belief that essence precedes existence. 
We are all born into the universe with a purpose. Also, the universe has a purpose, and this purpose is what gives us morals or absolutes. And if you're having trouble understanding the whole purpose-morals connection, look at it through the eyes of Christianity. So we as Christians believe that God gave us the purpose of glorifying himself. And to sin is to literally fail at our purpose because we're declaring that God is not as glorifying as he is, or not as glorious as he is. So in the same way, essentialism and other philosophies or religions that believe in purpose believe that when you don't live according to your purpose, that is evil. And when you live according to your purpose, that is good. And that's how they get their morals. Now, of course, the major difference between Christianity and all other religions and philosophies that believe in essence is that one, we as Christians believe that we can never live up according to our purpose without the help of Jesus Christ. Two, we believe this purpose comes from God, not from the universe or some other mysterious source. And three, we believe that this purpose is revealed to us through the word of God and the Holy Spirit, not as essentialism says, through strenuous study in science and math, or reason. Now, in order to find not only the purpose of the universe, but also the purpose of mankind, mankind and the universe had to be studied the same way. Now, what does this mean? Well, when science was based on a Christian foundation, scientists believed in an open system concept. And that means where the world works as a cause and effect machine, with man and God outside of it and able to influence it. Well, scientists then shifted to a closed system concept in which man and the world work as a machine and God has absolutely no place. And it's important to note that this did not occur because of new scientific evidence, but because the philosophy of the scientists shifted. And does everyone have this slide down? No, okay. So I'm just gonna keep talking <laughs> with the other slide. Um, but yeah, you don't really, yeah. Okay, so psychology and social sciences now became the same as chemistry and physics. But this left no room for love and freedom and for some reason, people didn't like being told they worked the same as a toaster. So philosophy shifted from emphasis on reason, reason to emphasis on feelings. And through four men in particular, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Immanuel Kant, George Wilhelm Hegel, and Soren Kierkegaard, the optimism began to disappear. And it's debatable which of these men had the most, if any, influence, but all we know is that after the influence of these men and the extensions made by their philosophers, the optimism completely died. And it is very important to note that like, the closed system concept wasn't inspired by new scientific evidence. There was just absolutely no evidence out there to back changing the system, but they did it because their worldview changed. Well, and one of the things that, that sort of popped in my head when you were talking about was the open system concept where man and God are outside and, and they can bring any influence in on things, but also, you know, people get their purpose from mm -hmm other means, possibly mystical, you know, it, it, it popped into my head that that's sort of at the, the base of every, like, anime movie or television show, like Sailor Moon, like any of these cartoons and animes that come out of Asia, like, that's at the root of it. Like, there's, like, the person is given, like, a mystical purpose, but it, it comes from, you know, 
it, it comes from somewhere mm -hmm. else. There, there's something mystical. It might be the, the spirits of the departed giving you advice from the beyond. Like, it, it's a very Asian mindset, or it used to be very yeah. Asian in nature, and of course now it's just trickled out mm -hmm. to all kinds of things. Yeah. I'll know the Disney movie Moana. Yes, that's a good yes. example of it. <laughs> uh, even maybe like Mulan, that too, mm -hmm. kind of yeah. all of those where they focus on. Ancestor seems to be the common source. Uh, sometimes I guess it's like the trees, but <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's typically ancestors. Yeah. Well, and ancestor worship, or if not worship per se, but honoring your ancestors is huge in Asia, like pick a country, any country, there is some variation of that that is worked deeply into the mm -hmm. culture. Tying into what Ms. Angela said, that ancestor veneration is so strong in some of the cultures, Asian cultures, and you know, the Pacific Islanders, mm -hmm. um, that some people would rather commit seppuku, commit suicide, than dishonor an ancestor. Very, very important. <coughs> well, and, and even the the Asian habit of like taking your shoes off when you come in the house and not tracking dirt from the outside into the interior of your house is it more strongly with some cultures than others, but it's wrapped up strongly with that. Like it, it would take like a whole other like presentation to unpack that, but just and and you know, handing things, uh, like when you give a gift and doing it with both hands instead of one, one hand is rude, both hands is respectful. Like, that there are all of these little nuances in Asian culture that connect directly back to that. And so, like, if you ever go to someone's house and they're from, like, Japan or China or Vietnam or whatever, and, and I've had it happen to me before where the, the, the husband or the wife of the house like just about comes unglued because people are walking into the house with their shoes on. Like that's not them being OCD, like this is deeply ingrained into their culture and there are these sorts of reasons behind that. Yeah, the search for meaning. The search just, for meaning. It's, yeah. yeah, that's what it comes down to. So am I good to change slides? All right, sweet. All right. So I'm not going to focus on all four of these men because their influence has mostly to do with the overall flow of philosophy, but I do want to focus on Soren Kierkegaard because he's often called the father of existentialism. So Kierkegaard was a theist whose focus was on the single individual, and he believed that when we follow God's will, it gives us a sense of meaning, not real meaning, just a sense of it, while we get to keep our singularity. Now singularity is just a word he used to describe what makes you unique, what makes you singular as an individual. He contrasted this living according to God's will with living according to the ethics of the world, which he says still gives us a sense of meaning, but at the cost of our singularity. So he said that living according to God's will is the better option, is what we should do. But God's will isn't discovered through the Bible. It's discovered through what you feel like God's will is. Remember, emphasis on feelings. Kierkegaard said that because we cannot prove that God exists or what his will is, we must take a leap of faith and embrace our actions as absurd. 
And this leap, or knowing what God's will is, is known through the passion of the faith, which is a term Kierkegaard used to describe what we feel like God's will is. And this, then, subjectivity is the truth. Reason has absolutely no place. Reason and faith are completely separated, with reason being seen as pessimistic, leaving man only as a machine, whereas the way to meaning and life and optimism is seen as non-reason. And for Kierkegaard, this leap of faith involved a distant God. But for Friedrich Nietzsche, another precursor to existentialism, it involved just yourself. And this is where we really see like the reason-faith divide. That's pretty big today. You know, if you are a scientist, then you're not going to have any sort of faith. Or if you are religious, then you're not going to believe in science. Yeah, yeah, pretty much stereotypes. That That's where we really see that divide. It kind of started with the whole Soren Kierkegaard guy. <laughs> and uh, when uh, Caitlin was showing me her initial draft of this, I, I pointed out to her, I, I, the, the big irony for this with Soren Kierkegaard is that his name literally translates as the golden church guard. Soren means gold or golden, and then Kierkegaard, church guard. So he's the golden guardian of the church, and yet this is the philosophy that he uh, doles out. Yeah, which, yeah. I mean, he believed that he was following God's will, but it just wasn't according to the Bible. It was what he felt like God's will was, um, which is just based on what you want to do. That's all it is. Yeah, it's always Sound. pretty. <laughs> yes, yeah. Not house of sand at all. <laughs> when you think about it, that's really just like another variation of somebody sitting in lotus position going, oh, yeah, <laughs> off in the corner. Because it's the, you know, I'm, I just, I, I feel the universe in my soul kind of thing. Yes. And that's mm. not repentance. That's not salvation. That's mm. not. A, a foundational relationship with your savior. Yeah, and it's definitely for this too. I guess we should probably keep in mind too that this God isn't even necessarily the Christian God. It can be any God at all, uh, because the word God just becomes a word. It becomes what you want God to be like. So it can really be any God out there. So is everyone good with this slide? All right, sweet. Okay. So. If Nietzsche sounds vaguely familiar to you, it's probably because we just talked about him not that long ago in the PowerPoint, Relativity versus Relativism. He also might sound familiar because he was the first one to say in a modern way that God is dead, which goes to show you that in existentialism, you can hold very different beliefs from your fellow existentialists. Nietzsche, like Kierkegaard, believed that subjectivity is the truth and that there is no reason or no meaning in life for people. His solution, however, was to create your own meaning in life through a vague feeling or instinct of what you feel is correct, instead of following what you feel like a vague God wants you to do. And he referred to this process as becoming a superhuman, one who masters emotions, creates their own meaning through self-reflection, and rejects societal and cultural values. And Nietzsche suggested that in order to become a superhuman, we should replace religion with philosophy, theater, literature, and humanities. 
He also suggested making a list of everyone and everything that limits your freedom. Those who say, hey, that's wrong, or you shouldn't do that, and completely cut them out from your life. Also, he believed that only three men ever came close to becoming a superhuman, and those were Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Buddha. Yes. And I, I cannot find the connection between the three. I, I don't know why he said that. And he didn't make the list himself, which I think is kind of funny. Especially, like, Buddha and Napoleon, and Julius Caesar, like, on the yeah. same list. And, like, we have two generals <laughs> yeah. responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands, and, and then, then Buddha, Buddha who yeah. uh, lived out the life of nonviolence, of Ahimsa, as the, the, that, that's the, the Buddhist word, the, the life of non-suffering. Or, or non-violence, rather. <laughs> Suffering is another conversation. But that's that's hilarious. Can't, can't connect those dots either. <laughs> and I, w- I wasn't given any explanation as to why. They just said that on the article. Like, these were the three men he thought. <laughs> okay. And then the picture down there, that's just his, what he considered the three steps to becoming a superhuman. This is where he gets a little, like, mystical. It's very strange. So you had to go through the camel phase, which is the first phase, and it's where you say yes to everything society has to offer you. Then you become the lion, which says no to everything society has to offer you. And then you become the baby or the child or the superhuman, which creates your own meaning. So you have to go through all three steps, and he considered Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Buddha having gone through all of those steps. It's almost like a weird sort of take on evolution. It is very strange. From a camel to a lion to a baby. Yes. And I don't know why he chose those, but... Yeah, but where did the camel come from? The camel's probably... Dude, it's my favorite one. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Um, No. And is everyone done with this slide? Okay, sweet. Did I speak? No, I think we did. So this is where existentialism begins to smoke, but before it can burst into full flame, it needed fuel, brought on by Martin Heidegger. And let me just start with saying, this guy is crazy. And I mean crazy, crazy. If you thought everyone else was crazy, this guy's like 10 times more crazier. And so for this, his focus in philosophy was what it means to exist. Not the meaning of existence, but literally what to exist means. And also to make matters ten times worse, he never even completed the book that presented his philosophical ideas, which means he has major holes, like holes larger than usual in all of his arguments. And even philosophers, people who study philosophy every day, not just me who studied it for four months, um, have trouble understanding what this guy is saying. And if you couldn't tell, it was very frustrating trying to research him and figure out what he was saying. But I do have to talk about him because he is considered as having a direct influence on existentialism. But he didn't even like his work being called existentialism. The only reason he's considered a father of existentialism, yes, there are several, is because he drew inspiration from Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. He also developed many motifs that would later characterize existential thinking. But the one I want to focus on today is what he considered the evidence of our freedom, anxiety. And so, before we talk about anxiety, we have to make a distinction. This anxiety is not probably what you would feel before doing, let's say, a major presentation. And also, anxiety and fear are two different things. 
though both have a feeling of vulnerability. Fear is a feeling of vulnerability attached to a specific object, whereas anxiety, in philosophy, is just a feeling of vulnerability with no specific object. And Heidegger said that when we feel this anxiety, it pulls us out of our projects. And projects is just what we're doing in society at the time that gives us this fake sense of meaning. So anxiety gives us the realization that what we do doesn't give us meaning, yet we do it anyway. And this leads to absurdity. And does anyone remember what the definition of absurdity is? It feels like it was hours ago. Yeah, just flip back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Man's continuous search for meaning in a meaningless world. Yes, good job, Sayla. <laughs> All right, so, and instead of, however, talking about Heidegger and his ideas on absurdity, I want to talk about Camus, and, or Albert Camus, another existential leader who had a lot to say on the subject. Before we even get to Camus, it should be noticed, noted that at this point, existentialism is a massive raging fire, especially <coughs> after World War II which is around the time of when Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, and Simone de Beauvoir were living. And the reason for the popularity of existentialism after World War II is, as Beauvoir put herself, because existentialism is the only philosophy that takes the question of evil seriously. So that's not exactly true, but to understand what she's saying, you have to remember that essentialism and all those really optimistic philosophies were popular right before World War II. And when World War II came around, which was filled with pain, suffering, and grief, people flocked to existentialism because it actually addressed those problems, unlike essentialism, which pretty much just ignored the ideas of pain and death. After returning from a physical war, there was a spiritual war to be fought, and a lot of people just didn't really want to fight anymore. So am I good to change the slide? All right, sweet. So now enter Camus. Camus, like Heidegger, forcefully separated himself from existentialism and didn't even consider himself a philosopher. However, since he wrote a lot about philosophy and developed many of existentialism ideas, he is considered an existentialist philosopher. And he wrote three works that spread his ideas on absurdity. His novel, The Stranger, his philosophical essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, and his play, Caligula. In these works, he claimed that life is meaningless and the world is unknowable or ununderstandable. Yet, we as man still try to find meaning and understand the wor world. This, he says, is the definition of absurd. And he says that we should live in this awareness of the absurd. Only when we are aware that our efforts lead nowhere will we be triumphant. And Camus used the story of Sisyphus to better illustrate this idea. So Sisyphus, according to Greek mythology, was a man who cheated death. So when death came to retrieve Sisyphus, Sisyphus tied death up and then told his wife to not leave him, to not bury him, or to perform any of his sacred death rituals. Well, when death finally came unchained and took Sisyphus down to Hades, Sisyphus was allowed to return to Earth. Why? To punish his wife for leaving him unburied and not performing the sacred death rituals. Well, of course, Sisyphus didn't do that and said he lived out a ripe, to a ripe old age and then died again. 
This time, for real. Of course, the gods weren't too happy about Sisyphus' deception, and so they have forced him, according to Greek mythology, to rule, rule, roll a large stone up a mountain in Hades for eternity. And every time the rock reaches a certain point at the mountain, it rolls back down the hill. This, Camus said, is the story of our lives. We, too, take up the great rock of meaning, rolling it up the mountain of life, hoping that if we reach the top, we will find ultimate meaning in life. But the rock does roll back down the hill. And in that moment of consciousness, the moment of realization that life has no meaning, and when we're going to get the rock again, this is our moment of triumph, Camus says. It's this awareness that life is meaningless, but we're still going to live anyway. We're still going to do what we want anyway. And this is what he also called the Great Rebellion. This is how we should live our lives. This is absurdity. Awareness of the absurdity of life is what existentialists call the realization of our freedom. And Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the most, if not the most, famous existentialist leaders, had a lot to say about this freedom. And so if you remember that vague feeling of anxiety Heidegger talked about, right? So that feeling of anxiety gives us the realization of absurdity, that life is meaningless, but we still live anyway. This absurdity then gives us the realization that we have freedom. And this freedom is something that every man has, and it's the freedom to do what we want, when we want, how we want. However, Sartre says, we can deny our freedom by putting stipulations from society on ourselves. And stipulations are just rules. And for example, an easy way to think about the rules of society is you know how it's common courtesy to hold the door open for someone behind you. Right, so Sartre calls that a rule placed on you by society that takes away your freedom. And he considers that rule bad because it leaves you with this feeling that you have to hold the door open for someone. You can't just walk in. And Sartre also says that these rules will not last because of what he calls anguish. And anguish is just a term used to describe our realization that one's resolves or one's rules have no power. And this is different from anxiety. So anxiety is the realization that life is meaningless. But anguish is the realization that these rules given to us have no power. So you know when you make a New Year's resolution, let's say that, you feel like that rule has power. You're motivated. You feel like that, that rule is actually binding you to do what it says. But then weeks later, you just really want to break your New Year's resolution. And that's what Sartre calls his anguish. The realization that that has no power. That rule has no power. So one's resolve, for example, to hold the door open for someone behind them, completely disappears when they realize there's only a few free TVs left inside the store. So Sartre calls us instead to accept our freedom and to live out authentically. And this is what Nietzsche referred to as becoming a superhuman. You create your own meaning and values. So Sartre claims that we must, like Nietzsche said, embrace the full weight of the meaninglessness of life and use philosophy and literature to create our meaning and values. We must be careful, however, to not rely on these things to give us meaning because that would be bad faith. They are only tools of discovery and Sartre considered anyone who relies on authority, church leaders, or friends to give meaning as having bad faith, as I just said. And is everyone good on this slide? 
All right, so instead of talking about Sartre and his ideas of bad faith, we're going to talk about Simone de Beauvoir, who was a lifelong companion of Sartre, who talked much about bad faith. So Simone de Beauvoir actually considered herself only the midwife of Sartre's existential ethics, and she wasn't even considered a philosopher until after her death. However, she developed a lot of ideas on existentialism. And in her book, The Ethics of Ambiguity, she rejects God and humanity, or society, the herd. Both God and humanity, she claims, claim to have absolutes, or meaning, for us. They also tell us to reject the pleasures of the present for a better future. Religion, through focusing on life after death, and humanity, or society, focusing on improved living and success for future generations. But Beauvoir says that the, pre the future is shaped by the present, and that when we confirm the dignity of today's humans, aka let people do what they want today, we confirm the dignity of tomorrow's humans. The only absolute, she claimed, is that there are no absolutes, which means that the only evil is the denial of someone's freedom or saying that there are absolutes or that there are rules. And this is where existentialism kind of, kind of differs from relativism, which we talked about a little bit a while ago. So relativism is basically like an extreme of existentialism, saying that there's absolutely no reason everything is relative. Existentialism says basically the same thing, except one exception. There is only one evil, and that's the denial of someone's freedom or claiming that there is a truth out there. And this leads to a discussion of our relationship with others. So our freedom can never be taken away from us. But, like Sartre said, we can put rules on ourselves to alienate us from our freedom. And this freedom, also like Sartre said, is the ability to reject, alter, or embrace other people's values or meaning. And this is different from bad faith. Because as long as we have the realization that life has no meaning, if I really like Lily's meaning in life, I can take it. As long as I realize that ultimately, I have no meaning. It's just what I want to do. So we must, Beauvoir says, call on others in their freedom to join us in bringing certain values, projects, and conditions into being in order to change the world. We need other people to accept our values and meaning. And, but to force our values and meaning on other people is to as I previously stated, the only evil in the world. We must fight this evil by protecting our and others' freedom. And in this fight, violence is sometimes necessary. And Beauvoir said, although violence is an assault on other people's freedom, it's just something we as mankind have to accept. To liberate the oppressed, we must sometimes have to destroy the oppressor. Now, Caitlin, you may be saying to yourself, this is great and all, but why should I care if I even should? I mean, I know existentialism is wrong or whatever, but what does it have to do with me? Well, it is true that existentialism as a formal philosophy is dying out, but more and more among people, this frame of thinking is becoming popular. And one way to see this is through general cultural movements, especially after World War II. 
so a little bit before World War II, let me change the slide so you guys can take notes. <laughs> a little bit before World War II, the idea of having a final experience was introduced by Carl Jaspers. And this final experience is basically just an experience that gives you a sense of meaning. And it's kind of like Nietzsche's idea of replacing religion with philosophy and humanities in order to help you create meaning. So, however, this final experience was now through drugs and music. So the use of drugs in finding a final experience and finding meaning was introduced by Aldous Huxley, who said that drugs could be taken whenever to have a final experience whenever and then have meaning. And this was actually very popular, and this is what led to the whole hippie world taking drugs as a sort of a religion. And this, like I said, was popular up until the late 60s. And by this time, between major celebrities overdosing and killings at music festivals where drugs were involved, drugs began to be seen no longer as optimistic. But as the time for drugs began to die, psychedelic rock to have a final experience became popular. And for the psychedelic rock, it was basically the same thing. You listen to the music, you have a final experience, and you're able to find meaning. And some psychedelic rock songs from this period that introduced or had final experience vibes to it was The Beatles' Revolver and Strawberry Fields Forever and Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. And of course there are more, but yeah. Did you have the Doors. Everything by The Doors is a final experience. You know, you take drugs to get yeah. a final experience. Yeah. That's all The Doors sing about. Yeah. Was. Because then you got that too, where they were singing about taking drugs to have a final experience. So it was, it was a lot. And then that picture is from Woodstock, which is, you know, they were singing and they were taking drugs just to have it's that like big, final experience. Big pinnacle of the 60s. Yes, yes. And that, that was what many people saw as a start of a new era. But when... So the 1970 was actually when it began to die to that optimism of psychedelic rock and drugs began to die because of an overdosing of a major celebrity. I think his name was Jimmy. Jimmy Hendrix. Yes. So that, his death actually kind of pushed drugs to be seen, not necessarily as optimistically giving you meaning, but more as a way of escaping well, life. Jimmy Hendrix dying was like Lady Gaga dying. It was <laughs> all these people all of a sudden would lose their celebrity role model mm -hmm. in the sense of oh she did this so I could do this Hendrix was oh Hendrix takes LSD to get this grander experience mm -hmm. and write all this music and stuff so I'm going to take LSD so I can be like Jimi Hendrix when Hendrix died they are like well there's no one to follow who takes yeah. LSD anymore let's stop and they kicked it to the side yeah. So. yeah and I mean people still take drugs today like that's still a thing but it's typically just to escape from reality and of course, the effects of existentialism did not stop there. They continued into the 2000s and the 2010s, and now the 2020s. And it impacts our culture in major ways. And ways to see this is through our movies, art, and law. And if you don't believe me, then I'll show you. But small caveat before we begin. When I say that a movie or art piece or whatever has existentialism ideas, I don't mean that the creator was an existentialist or it was directly inspired by existentialism. 
I just mean that it has small existentialism themes. So for the sake of this presentation, we're going to assume unless they come out and say, I was inspired by existentialism, they don't even know what the word means. My point in showing you these is not to say that everyone's an existentialist, but to show that it's so prominent in our culture and we don't even realize it. All right, so now we're going to get to talk about movies. And before I begin, I'm just going to give you guys a heads up. I'm about to ask another question. I want you to start thinking about movies in which you've seen existentialism ideas. Like I said, they don't have to follow every rule of existentialism. Maybe just this idea of creating your own destiny or rejecting society. Maybe even overcoming stereotypes in society. That could be existentialism. So just start thinking about those. And I'm going to go through three movies in which I saw existentialism. I'll let you guys think about that and take notes. <laughs> All right, so the first movie is the Lego movie. And if you remember, the main character, Emmett, is an unremarkable, ordinary, and therefore perfect citizen of the Lego world. And through prophecy and misidentification, he is told he's the special, the one who's supposed to save the Lego world. Well, come to find out, the prophecy is actually a fake. But instead of diving into remorse over the fact that ultimately he has no meaning in life, Emmett still transforms himself through his own actions. Him and his friends create their own meaning without or re rejecting the instructions of society, which in this case are literal instructions. And so they become master builders, creating what they want to create without instructions. And most of them are children's movies, just so everyone knows. Yeah, this one and then the next one. No, the, yeah, that <laughs> one, I would be very surprised if the director and writers of that movie said yes. that they were not directly, because that is like... It was pretty map. big. It's when I was reading about it, I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I never, he never came out and said, I'm an existentialist, so I was just like, better yeah, be safe than good. sorry. <laughs> I was just saying the same, there was no accident. Yes, a lot of them are children's movies. <laughs> I actually have an article on it that just lists a bunch of children's movies that have existentialism. Frozen got on there as well. So <laughs> if anyone can figure out how Frozen is an existentialism movie, I'll be very happy. <laughs> All right, are we good? All right, so the next movie that shows existentialism themes is the movie Babe, the one about the pig. <laughs> so, in this movie, Babe wants to be a sheep herder, but everyone on the farm already has an essence or a job that they're born into. So in order for Babe to overcome the obstacles of society, he must reject the societal idea that he has an essence already. And he does this. He overcomes society and becomes a pig sheep herder through his own efforts. But we also see Camus' idea of uh, so the idea, what's it called? <laughs> Camus' idea of triumph, that's right, in the same movie, through a duck, Ferdinand. So Ferdinand is aware of the insignificance of a duck's job on a farm. But instead of being sad about this, he continues to live his life through seeking another job. And this is really clear in a quote from the movie where Ferdinand is talking to Babe. He says, I know the life of a duck isn't much in the grand scheme of things, but pig, I'm all I've got. The duck is aware of the meaninglessness of his life, 
but he still clings to life anyway, just as Sisyphus, remember the Greek guy, continued to roll the rock up the mountain, and just as we continue to live and try to find meaning, even though we know in the end it's not necessary, it's not going to work out. Yes? These ideas of, you know, just live because you have to live, mm -hmm. I think that that's a big, because you have these people who are feeling depression and all this, you know, suicide and all those kind of things, and if you're just telling someone feeling suicidal, life is meaningless, uh, but you have to live because you have to live, and wow, that's some great consolation yeah. right yeah. there, that's really talking them into not doing this terrible yeah. thing or considering doing it. And that was brought up to Camus several times. Like, that was actually one of the things he talked about. He's like, well, you really shouldn't commit suicide because, you know, we're just rebelling against this idea that life is meaningless. Like, you should just live anyway. But it's like you said, that's a terrible reason. Like, no one, everyone's going to be like, okay, no. And just, yeah, it's not an, a good reason. All right, so is everyone good on this one? All right, so finally... We have, and it's not really a movie, but it's a character who's in several TV shows and movies, Batman. Specifically, how he's portrayed in Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. So, now, superheroes as a whole are typically seen as going against existentialism because they're born with powers or they were given powers and feel like it is their job or their essence to protect other people. However, Batman, or Bruce Wayne, created Batman himself. Yes, he was inspired by the death of his parents, but you could say that that was his moment of eye-opening, his moment of realization that life is meaningless, that life is chaotic, and that no one can give him meaning. And so he decides to create his own meaning anyway, through Batman, and to create meaning not only for himself, but for other people. Also, considering Batman is kind of a morally gray character, he uses a lot of tactics that we would consider not superhero tactics. That also shows existentialism because he's not conforming to societal ideas of superheroes. And the only true difference between Batman and the villains he fights is the fact that he avoids the only evil in the world, and that is taking the freedom of other people. He fights villains who force, villains who force other people to do things that they want them to do or are violent towards other people. Batman takes care of those guys. And that is the last one. So does anyone have any movies that they would like to share? Like I said, just, it doesn't have to be strictly existentialism. I was going to make note, because the first movie that popped into my head when you put up the Lego one, and, and this is a very 80s movie, and it's The Breakfast Club. Oh, yes. um, and if you line that one up, see that one's from the 1980s. The, the Batman, uh, like he, the, the, the Batman franchise was really in its heyday in the 90s. Babe is an early 2000s movie. The Lego movie is like the 2010. So you get, like, it's like every decade there is some movie or batch of movies that for that generation is like, this is what everybody's flocking to see. This is so cool. And yet, some of them are sort of like what you mapped out there with the Lego movie. Like, it is just a roadmap <laughs> of this kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I mean, I would say Batman. You know, you can, <laughs> I'm not Batman. I mean, Superman. But, um, but in the story, he just is. He is. He's not, he doesn't try to get better. He doesn't, you know. 
already is. I mean, therefore, I guess he right because he dropped in from yeah. another planet. So he's mm -hmm. not really an ex exes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that one that that was me for like three months and then the last <laughs> month i was like i can finally say it <laughs> yes yeah superman's probably more uh, nietzsche because he's the one that yeah. i give you the superman <laughs> i guess i really have to iron man would be the first one he makes his own path through with his armor and then another one would be dr strange yeah. He mm -hmm. doesn't accept the path that could happen. Mm -hmm. Instead, he finds another one to go through. Yeah, yeah. Those are really good. I couldn't find any for Marvel, so good job. I was, I was thinking um, a lot of the action movies are mm -hmm. about this guy. Uh, like, one of my personal favorites, uh, Lethal Weapon. The guy is one of the main characters. His wife died, and the whole story is him not committing suicide because he's got to go on living and... Um, he, you know, he does find a sense of family through his partner and stuff, but it's still throughout the movie. He has to go on living because his job. He has to go on living because he has to protect the people, blah, 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 go down the list of things. When you get to the end of it, it's just he has to go on living because he has to go on living. Even WandaVision has that kind of thing because she makes her own <laughs> world yeah. without even caring about hurting mm -hmm. other people because yeah. she's making her own meaning. Okay. I'm also going to go into Frozen because I just, I really <laughs> thought this was, it's weird how, so anyways, Frozen actually shows Nietzsche's three steps of becoming a superhuman. So the first one is she says yes to society, right? Okay, that's when she's okay with her parents' rules, she wears the gloves, she stays hiding in her castle. But then the next one, the lion phase, is when she says no to all society, and that's the whole song, Let It Go. She's running away from society. She's completely rejecting it. And then the last phase is when she creates her own meaning. She accepts who she is. She accepts her powers and goes back. That's, yeah, that's another one which I thought was kind of weird how <laughs> it follows all three steps. Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid, yeah. Oh, we're talking about Disney movies. Yeah. Disney has a lot of them. <laughs> Just go down the list and you yeah. could probably find cool. it yeah. about all of them. She tries um, in the beginning to conform to her father's wishes and the societal expectations of the mer mermaid and men, mer society, and society. Yes. yes. And then she she full bore rejects all of it and throws everything out and accepts the evil octopus witch's terms to turn her into a human and then kind of comes to terms with life when she gets her man. Yes. That's a wonderful moral there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you have another one? Back to the future. Okay. Now we get to move on to art because that is another major part of culture that existentialism has touched. And for art sorry, I just lost my spot. So, art pieces influenced by existentialism aim to explore the role of sensory perception, particularly vision, in the art. Existentialism was the perfect tool with which to study post-war art. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Oh, okay. That's, no. Thank you for reminding me. Well, there's the first one. So, the first example is The Blue Phantom by Alfred Otto Wolfgang Schulz. And I'm pretty sure that's not how you say it, but I could not find how to pronounce his name. And so 
Wool's actually was claimed by existentialism. Jean-Paul Sartre claimed that his work beautifully represented our horror of absurdity. And the blue phantom exemplifies the general isolation and alienation we as human beings feel in the world, in the meaningless world. And according to our interpreters, the shape is a vague human form. <laughs> and these short crisscross strokes, which I don't know, can you see the little strokes? They kind of look like hairs. They're those. That is supposed to be how the painting is at war within itself, showing that how we are at war within ourselves through absurdity, the search for meaning, when we know life is ultimately meaningless. I think my three-year-old cousin painted that. Yeah, no. <laughs> After I saw this, I was like, I could have been an artist, guys. <laughs> it's like, well, I missed my calling. And that's, yeah. <laughs> and we also see a lot with art, uh, this not exactly depicting how things are seen. Like, that's not a human. That's not what humans look like. But they say it is. Because it's what you feel like humans look like. Um, but of course, like with the movies, not all artists are existentialists, and not all, all artists who use like symbolism or not representing things are existentialists. Alright, so another piece of existentialism art is from Francis Bacon, who is considered by many to be a quintessential existentialist artist. And his 1953 study was based on a 1650 portrait of Pope Innocent X. And in it, you can see that the Pope is seemingly screaming, surrounded by cage-like bars. And this shows how he is trapped in society's rules. And the screaming is the fact that he feels pain. The fact that his freedom is being taken away is painful. He also seems to be evaporating, which goes to show that when you follow the rules of society, which in his case were the rules of Catholicism, your, your true self begins to disappear. And this one's a little scary, in my opinion. <laughs> Just slightly. Well, it also reminds me, about the time that I started teaching at Lighthouse, about 2004-ish, is that all right? Um, there was a piece of art, so-called art, that made the news because so many churches and churchgoers found it offensive. Somebody, this was at, I, I, I think this was at like some big art exhibit in New York. It was a photograph of a crucifix submerged into a jar of urine. And it was supposed to be this sort of interpretation that that sort of, you know, the futility of religion, the futility of life, and it's all meaningless. And, um, you know, a lot of people took hot offense to it, as they should, but, um, but it was um, exonerated in other circles, justified, I should say, in other circles, because it was supposed to be about that freedom of expression uh, to express the futility of of um, the, the, the reasoning that uh, society puts on us, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it was like a big hullabaloo in the early 2000s.
I would imagine this would be too, but oh, yeah. now we're kind of yeah, just yeah. Can you imagine somebody like hanging that in front of the Vatican in the middle of the day? They still burned witches at the stake back then. They wouldn't go. Yeah. It's like a scene from Dawson's Inferno. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's very interesting. All right, so is everyone good with this one? So finally, we have a sculpture that represents a theme of existentialism by Alberto Giacometti. So this is the Walking Man 1, and it shows a fragile, isolated figure who continues to move forward. And it's similar to Camus' idea of understanding life's meaningless, yet still moving forward. You can also see his loaded feet, which many art interpreters say he is going through an existential crisis. That's how you know, because he's feeling the weight, this realization of life has no meaning, but I still must move forward. That is. And I don't know if there's a walking man, too. I could not find if there was one. <laughs> a lot of times those artists, they'll do mock-ups and they'll have like, you know, uh, version one, version two, version three. And then when it comes down to like crunch time, crunch time, like right before the exhibit, they'll go, okay, this is my best one. This is the one I put out. And, and so that's probably why the number. That makes sense. I'm not like super into art. Like I, I like art, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know much well, about I, it. Well, I, so. don't, I don't see this as being the kind of art that you would like, not. Go and search out. Probably not. Because it's pretty depressing. Like, it is very movies. depressing. <laughs> yes, it feels real. All right. And then, is everyone good with this one too? Right, so, of course, another major part of culture is law. And existentialists don't necessarily think that law shouldn't be a thing, but that there should only be laws preventing the one evil in the world, and that is taking the freedom of other people. Of course, that's the theory, but in reality, this looks like a small group of people making decisions on what they think the majority will be happy with, and that will benefit themselves. And this is very clear in a quote from former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Weldon Holmes Jr. His statement in his book, The Common Law, he claims that truth, or law, is the majority vote of that nation that could lick all others, and lick being beat, rule over all others. So because existentialism states life is meaningless and we, mu we must create our own meaning, Law ultimately goes to those in power. Law can never be king. Feelings are king. Now, sometimes this way can lead to happy results, but it can also lead to very bad results. An example of a very bad result that has happened is abortion in the United States. So, at the time of the... Er, okay, sorry. Under the 14th Amendment, it states that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. At the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, human being was the same as person. They were interchangeable terms. And there was no connection between only being a human being if you were a citizen of the United States. Also, the unborn were considered human beings. And though they weren't considered citizens because they hadn't been born yet, they were human, and they were under the protection of the 14th Amendment. However, in Roe versus Wade, which was a case that ruled abortion as a constitutional right, this amendment was completely ignored and continues to be completely ignored. 
we are doing what we want to do, what the majority would be happy with, or what those in power are happy with. And what's kind of terrifying about this is the fact that it was just accepted. No one was really raising any red flags about it, or at least not the majority was raising any flags about it. And even though people are saying that they might not want to get an abortion, they don't want to hinder someone else's freedom to get an abortion. And that's just not with abortion, but throughout the nation, throughout every problem, is no one is, everyone wants to not step on someone else's toes. They don't want to take away someone else's freedom. People should be able to do what they want, be who they want, love who they want. And that's what's even scarier about this whole fire, is that its destruction is widely accepted by society and even encouraged. Even Christians have trouble seeing this destruction. Now, um, one of the things that I've mentioned to my modernity classes before, um, Roe versus Wade passed when I was about four months old. And one of the things when I, I finally learned about Roe versus Wade and really wrapped my mind around what happened there, um, that's one thing that's always sort of haunted me is that there were kids in school, there were kids that should have been in school with me, kids who should have been at my vacation Bible school, who should have been in my, because like it, it happened roughly about the time that I was born. Um, I was born in September of 72, it passed in January of 73. Um, I believe. Um, but what's so interesting was when I was about 30, one of the major news stories of the time was the apparent deficit in the workforce of skilled labor. And, and, and it, was, it had to have been like an election year because everybody was talking about it on the news. And it was like, you know, we need more scientists, we need more doctors, where are our lawyers? And, you know, they were going around and interviewing somebody, everybody until some very smart person, upon being interviewed, pointed out that the number deficit of people in the workforce that everybody was complaining about matched exactly with the number of children aborted during the first three years of Roe versus Wade. And they're like, there's your deficit. You say you need skilled labor within this age range and these things, and you're missing, and it was like some crazy number in the millions, and it's like, there's your missing deficit. You aborted them in the first three years of Roe versus Wade. Boom. It was immediately dropped. It didn't make any of the news networks after that. And, yeah, and that's still how it is today, just the fact that people, it's not legal according to our constitution, but we're saying it's okay because the majority of people are okay with it. And so, and it makes money, so. I mean, when you talk about the fact that you killed so many children, I mean, okay, if, even if you're talking to someone who agrees with it, and I assume they're not Christian, I hope they don't have a Christian worldview and think that this is okay. You say, okay, well, how about, you? okay, what if you killed the kid who found the cure for cancer? What if you killed the kid who proved, you're an evolutionist, I assume, who proved evolution? You know, go down the list. Future presidents, politicians, world leaders, civil rights activists. Go down the list. They should be here and they're not because you have killed these children. You cannot tell me that they are not human beings when they would have served a purpose and had a meaning in life and you killed them. 
and the, the psychological defects that these mothers face when they have an abortion is ridiculous. Um, you, they constantly push for adoption and abortion, and if you have an abortion, your soul knows that you've murdered a child. Whether you want to tell yourself you have or not, your soul will know. And the mental illness rates that these women face after they have an abortion is off the charts because they know. They know they killed a kid. They could have just as easily have given birth and given it to a family who would have taken care of it. But no, they had to go and kill a kid. Conversely, you can also go through the list of, um, of wonderful artists and lawyers and, and you know dignitaries and, and just people throughout history that if they had been born during a later time, they probably would have been aborted. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so you can make that argument both ways. But going back to this existentialism, um, one of the things that is, is impressing me is just not just the jawcracker names that you've had to spend four months learning how to pronounce, but just like this philosophy, like it is so like just twisted up on itself. Like if you swallow this, you know, hook, line, and sinker, then you're going to start believing that up is down and left mm -hmm. is right and inside out is outside in and, 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 and you're going to have it all flipped around. Yeah. Yeah. I think Christianity is easier to understand than any of this crap. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and that's with almost every humanistic religion or philosophy. It's easier to understand Christianity. It makes more sense. No, I have somebody, um, I'm calling out like a family member. Yeah. Like, I have this aunt who thinks that we were born by aliens and that the Bible was written up by aliens and there are aliens living among us in the law. <laughs> um, and she goes on and she, she, she could go on for hours and my mom just kind of looks at her and she's like, if you can believe this, why can't you take into account anything in the Bible? And like her face just kind of like, like she had no argument for it and i think it's just kind of crazy like that people take so much time to do this yeah yeah they take a lot of time and effort to perfect it all because there are a lot of holes in this and there are still people today working on ideas of existentialism in order to explain the holes i mean the problem they have is they've dug a hole and so they start digging another hole to fill in that <laughs> hole and they realize they don't have enough dirt to cover both holes and they start freaking out <laughs> yeah. and then you look at Christianity and we're like, real simple. All you got to do is say you're not in charge of your life anymore. It's super simple. Yeah. <laughs> it's also very hard to do. And I that's mean, yes, where a lot of it's people. It's simple but hard at yeah. the same time. So, I've compared existentialism to a fire, not just because I wanted to reference a cool song and you say great illustration, but because that's exactly what existentialism is. A massive, raging fire that destroys every aspect of one's life. Whoa, Caitlin, that's a little intense. I mean, it's just a philosophy. Yes, it is a philosophy, but it's also a worldview. And worldviews have consequences on yourself and everybody else, and on every aspect of your life. And these consequences can be good or bad. And in the case of existentialism, the consequences are very and will continue to be very bad. Abortion, the slaughter of innocent children, being only one of them. You see, man needs to worship something. He needs rules. Yes, Sartre was right when he said man will break the rules, but wrong in his suggestion that means that there are no rules or that there should be no rules. 
man needs to worship something. He needs to have rules. And because of this, man will always fall into following someone's rules, whether they be of a tyrant, the government, a family member, or friends, or even a former existentialist leader. And man actually even knows there are rules. If you look at the moral teachings of the ancient Hindus, Chinese, Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, you will see how similar they are to one another and our own moral code. Yes, there are some differences, but we all seem to know that there's a line, that there's a boundary you just don't cross. Also, when we're arguing with someone, we can tell that we all appeal to some common standard. So for example, if someone were to take your seat, you would say, well, how would you like that if someone did that to you? Or if you were promised that seat by that person, you would call upon them to keep their promise. We seem to know that keeping our promises and doing to others as we want others to do to us is a common standard that everyone should follow. But according to existentialism, that person didn't do anything wrong. They just took your seat, not your freedom. Man also knows that something is very wrong with this world. Existentialism and its descriptions of anxiety, anguish, chaos, meaninglessness, all show that we as man know that something is off about this world. But in the face of pain, suffering, and death, existentialism and every other humanistic philosophy and religion give you no hope, no matter how hard they try to convince you otherwise. In his speech, Existentialism is a Humanism, Jean-Paul Sartre claimed that existentialism is optimistic or hopeful. However, two sentences earlier, he claimed that nothing can save man from himself. So he knows that man needs saving, that's what he just said, and also he says we are condemned to be free. However, he says that nothing can save man from himself. We are literally without hope. So when you face suffering or pain or death as an existentialist or other humanists, you are forced to accept the meaninglessness of your life alone without hope. So where does that leave us? Well, you have two major options. Eat, drink, and be happy because tomorrow you die, or today, maybe in a few hours, or you can discover the truth of the gospel, the word of God, and the God, the only true wonderful God it describes. And if you choose the latter option, which I certainly hope you do, it is then your responsibility to put out the fires of the world. We as Christians are the volunteer fire department. And though we do not need to go nearly as in depth as we just went with existentialism, we still need to understand the fires of the world. Because if we don't, we may, might be running into a grease fire with a gallon of water. So yes, Existentialism is important to understand because it is a major raging fire that if we aren't careful, we will be burned. But for those in Christ, we have hope. Hope that one day every fire of this world will be put out and that we will be saved from the eternal fire, face to face with the Savior who gives us meaning and values and happiness, eternal happiness. And you should know what you, should believe, what you believe and be able to defend it. Because, as we just saw, what we believe starts and grows fires that either bring death and destruction or light and warmth. And I'll let you guys finish talking. <laughs> mental heavy lifting, Dan, that you've been wallowing through for the last several months. 
freedom. <laughs> freedom. Okay. Yeah. Or is it? <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Well, I know people are still copying, and I'm, I'm going to start moving to the front room so I can um, switch over to some, you know, what I was talking about with Microsoft here in a few minutes. But I want to mention here, um, in years past, the very first day of modernity, I do my, I have done in the past, and I'll probably do a version of it here in a, in a few weeks, my uh, a version of what I call the Uncle Andrew Syndrome uh, lecture. And uh, if you're familiar with Narnia, then you know who Uncle Andrew is. He is Diggory's uncle in The Magician's Nephew. He is the wise magician who has gone to great lengths to find um, an essence from outside of their own universe that he can imbue into these magic rings that will allow him to decide when to slide in and out of this world into the next. And, you know, he, he's the scientist. He's the one who's made the pact with the devil. He's the one who has all of this mystical knowledge that is above mere mortals. Um, but the upshot is, is by the time you get to the climax of the book, and he comes face to face with Aslan. He is beyond the ability to even hear the lion speak to him because he has spent the, the previous two chapters essentially with his fingers in his ears going la 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 la. There is no lion, it's just a talking lion. There is no lion, there, uh, if, or if there is, it's just, a uh, it's just a roaring lion. You know, he's not talking. Just a roaring lion. It's a normal lion. He's not really saying anything. So when Aslan comes to him with the promise of healing, with the promise of rest, to be rid of these annoyances that have been plaguing him, he, he turns to Diggory and Polly and says, all I can give this old sinner is sleep because he has blocked me from doing anything else in his life. And it is such a picture of what she has just spent the last hour and a half <laughs> uh, talking to you. And it's like, there's such convoluted lies, but once you absorb it to the point that you can no longer hear the lion speak to you, then all, all you can get are those meager, like physical rests in this world, because any hope of hope or real rest or real saving is gone to you, mm -hmm. and and that that is that should be a very sobering thought. Yes, Red. Uh, sometimes I wish like C.S. Lewis would have met some of these guys and mm. run down the hammock. Oh. Or Francis Schaeffer, because both of them are extremely um, able to think in the mindset that these smart-ish people. Yeah, thinking? they could articulate it. Yeah. Well, and I like what you said. You gave the example of people stealing your seat. <laughs> and that is actually the very first chapter of Mere Christianity yes. by C.S. Lewis. I got, it, I got it from here. I'm going to just be honest with you. There I got has, that stuff No, but see, that's the thing. And yeah. if you pay attention to the years of when some of these people lived, their lives overlapped with Schaefer and Lewis. And so as far as whether or not they ever met in person, I don't know. I would have to look that up. I don't know. But I can guarantee you that Schaefer writing How Shall We Then Live, Lewis writing Mere Christianity, that they were answering the Uncle Andrews of their day. 
they, they were, and, and of course I can tell you that Uncle Andrew was dropped into the magician's nephew as this, this picture of the um, Camus and the Heideggers and, and, and those guys because that's who he was. So as far as whether or not they actually got to talk to any of these people in person, I don't know. But I, I think um, they were definitely trying to answer into their culture the time. talked about the first week of class because the the real sticking point for really any human being coming to Christ the thing that you know makes makes a person hesitate is that swallowing of the pride of getting to a point where you go you know I can't save myself and left to my own devices I am a hot mess like I, I am a wreck outside of the saving grace of Christ and I cannot do it myself. I must have help. And being able to admit that you need help, even in moving furniture in your own house, most people don't want help, let alone saying, I need someone to have the last word on my life. Because we think that is taking away our freedom. And it's actually the opposite. It is the only true freedom worth having. That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.